Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Please welcome Lori Moore. Thank you very much. Um, I apologize for being late. My my driver got. I hope she's not here because I'm going to speak about her. Uh, <laughs> took us over an hour <laughs> to get from downtown, um, but we got a we had a nice tour of LA. Um, this city is huge. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, I'm going to move this water. Okay. Um, I'm going to read a story called Thank You for Having Me because that's exactly how I feel. Thank you for having me. The day following Michael Jackson's death, I was constructing my own memorial for him. I played his videos on YouTube and sat in the kitchen at night with the iPod light at the table center, the only source of illumination. I listened to Man in the Mirror and Ben, my favorite, even if it was about a killer rat. I tried not to think about its being about a rat, as it was also the name of an old beau who had emailed me from Istanbul upon hearing of Jackson's death. Apparently, there was no one in Turkey to talk about it with. When I heard the news of Jackson's death, I thought of you, the expo had written, in that sweet, loose-limbed dance you used to do to one of his up-tempo numbers. I tried to think positively. Well, at least Whitney Houston didn't die, I said to someone on the phone. <laughs> Every minute that ticked by in life contained very little information until suddenly it contained too much. Mom, what are you doing, asked my 15-year-old daughter, Nikki. You look like a crazy lady sitting in the kitchen like this. I'm just listening to some music, I said. But like this, I didn't want to disturb you. You are so totally disturbing me, she said. <laughs> Nikki had lately announced a desire to have her own reality show so that the world could see what she had to put up with. <laughs> I pulled out both the earbuds. What are you wearing tomorrow? Whatever, she said. I mean, does it matter? Oh, no, not really. Nikki sauntered out of the room. Of course, it did not matter what young people wore. They were already amazing looking without really knowing it, which was also part of their beauty. I was going to be Nikki's date at the wedding of Maria, her former babysitter, and Nikki was going to be mine. The person who needed to be careful what she wore was me. It was a wedding in the country, a half hour drive, and we arrived on time, but somehow we seemed the last ones there. Guests milled about semi-purposefully. Maria, 
someone is reading along in the back and I'm going to be making changes. I wonder if she's noticing that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, okay. Maria, an attractive, restless Brazilian, was marrying a local farm boy for the second time. A second farm boy on a second farm. The previous farm boy. The, the previous farm boy she had married, Ian, was present as well. He had been hired to play music, and as the guests floated by with their plastic cups of wine, Ian sat there playing a slow, melancholic version of I Want You Back. Except he didn't seem to want her back. He was smiling and nodding at everyone and seemed happy to be part of this send-off. He was the entertainment. He wore a t-shirt that read, thank you for having me. <laughs> this seemed remarkably sanguine and useful, as well as a little beautiful. I wondered how it was done. I myself had never done anything remotely similar. Marriage is one long conversation, wrote Robert Louis Stevenson. Of course, he died when he was 44. <laughs> So he had no idea how long the conversation could really get to be. <laughs> I can't believe you wore that, Nikki whispered to me in her mauve eyelet sundress. I know, it probably was a mistake, I said. I was wearing a synthetic leopard print sheath. I admired camouflage. A leopard's markings, I'd imagined, existed because a leopard's habitat had once been alive with snakes and blending in was required. Leopards were frightened of snakes and also of chimpanzees who were in turn frightened of leopards. A standoff between predator and prey since there was a confusion as to which was which. This was also a theme in the wilds of my closet. Perhaps I had watched too many nature documentaries. <laughs> Maybe you could get Ian some lemonade, I said to Nikki. I had already grabbed some wine from a passing black plastic tray. Yes, maybe I could, she said, and loped across the yard. I watched her broad, tan back and her confident gait. She was a gorgeous giantess. I was in awe to have such a daughter. Also, in fear, as in fearful for my life. <laughs> it's good you and Maria have stayed friends, I said to Ian. Ian's father, who had one of those embarrassing father-in-law crushes on his son's departing wife, was not taking it so well. One could see him, misty-eyed, treading the edge of the property with some ice gin, keeping his eye out for Maria, waiting for her to come out of the house, waiting for an opening when she might be free of others so he could rush up and embrace her. Yes, Ian smiled inside, and for a fleeting moment, everything felt completely fucked up. <laughs> and then everything righted itself again. It felt important spiritually to go to weddings, to give balance to the wakes and memorial services. People shouldn't have been set in motion on this planet only to grieve losses. And without weddings, there were only funerals. I had seen a soccer mom become a rhododendron with a plaque next to the soccer field parking lot, as if it had been watching all those matches that had killed her. I had seen a brilliant young student become a creative writing contest, as if it were all that writing that had been the thing to do him in. 
and I had seen a public defender become a justice fund, as if one paid for fairness with one's very life. I had seen a dozen people become hunks of rock with their names engraved so shockingly perfectly upon the surface it looked as if they had indeed turned to stone, been given a new life the way the moon is given it through some lighting tricks and a face-like font. I had turned a hundred Rolodex cards around to their blank side. So let a babysitter become a bride again. Let her marry over and over. So much urgent and lifelike love went rumbling around underground and died there, never got expressed at all. So let some errant and convenient attraction have its way. There was so little time. There are a bazillion Brazilians here, said Nikki, <laughs> arriving with two lemonades. What did you expect? I took one of the lemonades for Ian and put my arm around her. She was silent for a while. Do you ever think of Dad? Dad who, I asked. <laughs> Come on, she said. You mean Daddy? The weekend her father left, left the house, the town, the country, everything, packing so lightly I believed he would come back. He had said, you can raise Nikki by yourself, you'll be good at it. And I had, and I had said, are you on crack? <laughs> and he re replied, continuing to fold a blue twill jacket, yes, a little. <laughs> Dadder as in batter, Nikki said now. She sometimes claimed to friends that her father had died, and when she, when she was asked how, she would gaze bereavedly off into the distance and say, a really, really serious gang of, game of hangman. <laughs> Mothers and their only children of divorce were a skewed family dynamic, if they were families at all. Perhaps they were more like cruddy-buddy movies, and the dialogue between them was unrecognizable as filial or parental. Still, I preferred the whole thing to being a lonely old spinster, the fate I once thought I was most genetically destined for. <laughs> if you were alone when you were born, alone when you were dying, really absolutely alone when you were dead, why learn to be alone in between? If you had forgotten, it would quickly come back to you. Aloneness was like riding a bike at gunpoint with the gun in your own hand. Aloneness was the air in your tires, the wind in your hair. You didn't have to go looking for it with open arms. With open arms, you fell off the bike. I was drinking my wine too quickly. <laughs> Maria came out of the house in her beautiful shoulderless wedding dress, which was white as could be. What a fantastic costume, said Nikki archly. She was fearless. I felt paralyzed beside her. And the love I had for her was less for this new spiky Nikki than for the old spiky one, which was still inside her somewhere, though it, w it was a matter of faith to think so. Surely that was why faith had been invented, to raise teenagers without dying. <laughs> Although, of course, it was also why death was invented, to escape teenagers altogether. <laughs> I can't believe Maria's wearing white, said Nikki. I shrugged. What color should she wear? Gray, Nikki said immediately, to acknowledge having a brain, a little gray matter. 
<laughs> Actually, I said, I saw something on PBS recently that said only the outer bark of the brain, and it does look like bark is gray. Apparently, the other half of the brain has a lot of white matter for connectivity. Nikki snorted, as she often did when I uttered the letters PBS. <laughs> then, said Nikki, she should wear gray in acknowledgement of having half a brain. <laughs> I nodded. I get your point, I said. Guests were eating canapes on paper plates and having their pictures taken with the bride, not so much with Maria's new groom, a boy named Hank, which was short not for Henry but for Johannes, and who was not wearing sunglasses like everyone else, but was sort of squinting at Maria in pride and disbelief. Hank was also a musician, though he mostly repaired banjos and guitars, restrung and varnished them, and that was how he, Maria, and Ian had all met. Now the air was filled with the old silver jewelry smell of oncoming rain. I edged toward Ian, who was looking for the next song, idly strumming, trying not to watch his father, I, Maria. Ian smiled and began to sing, I will always love you, sounding oddly like Bob Dylan, but without the sneer. You are a saint, I said when he finished. He was a sweet boy, and when Nicky was little, he had often come over and played soccer in the yard with her and Maria. Oh no, I'm just a deposed king of corn. She bought the farm, I mean, I sold it to her, and then she flipped it and bought this one instead. He motioned toward the endless field beyond the tent where the corn was midget and standing in mud, June not having been hot enough to evaporate the puddles. The tomatoes and marijuana would not do well this year. Last night, he said, I had a dream that I was in West Side Story and had forgotten all the words to I like to be in America. <laughs> doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. No, I said, I guess not. Jesus, what is my dad doing, Ian said, looking down and away. Ian's father was still prowling the perimeter a little drunkenly, not taking his eyes off the bride. The older generation, I said, shaking my head as if it didn't include me. They can't take any change. There's too much missingness that has already accumulated. They can't take any more. Jeez, Ian said, glancing up and over again. I wish my dad would just get over her. I swallowed more wine while holding Ian's lemonade. Over by the apple tree, there were three squirrels. A threesome of squirrels looked ominous like a plague. <laughs> what other songs you got, I asked him. Nikki was off talking to Johannes Hank. I have to save a couple for the actual ceremony. There's going to be an actual ceremony? Sort of. Maybe not actual, actual. They have things they want to recite to each other. Oh, yes, that, I said. They're going to walk up together from this canopy toward the house, say whatever, and then people get to eat. Everyone had brought food, and it was spread out on a long table between the house and the barn. I had brought two large roaster chickens, cooked accidentally unclean, while I was listening to Michael Jackson on my iPod. <laughs> But the chickens had looked okay, I thought, hanging off the bone a bit, but otherwise fine, even if not as fine as when they had started and had been Amish and air-chilled in a fortune. <laughs> when I had bought them the day before at Whole Foods and gasped at the total on my receipt, the cashier had said, yes, some people know how to shop here and some people don't. 
3333, I said. Perhaps that's good luck. Yep, it's about as lucky as two dead birds get to be, said the cashier. <laughs> Is there a priest or anything? Will the marriage be legal? I now asked Ian. Ian smiled and shrugged. They're going to say, you do, after the other one says, I do. Double indemnity. I put his lemonade down on a nearby table and gave him a soft chuck on the shoulder. He, we both looked across the yard at Hank, who was wearing a tie made of small yellow pop beads that formed themselves into the shape of an ear of corn. It had ingeniousness and tackiness, both, like so much else created by people. That's a lot of do's, I said. I know, he said, but I'm not making a beeline for the jokes. The jokes? The doozy one, the doo-doo one. I'm not going to make any of them. Why would you make jokes, I asked. It's not like you're the best man. Ian looked down and twisted his mouth a little. Oh, dear, you are, I said. I squinted at him. When young, I had practiced doing the upside-down wink of a bird. Don't ask, he said. Well, look, I put my arm around him. George Harrison did it, and no one thought twice. Or, well, no one thought more than twice. <laughs> Nikki approached me quickly from across the grass. Mom, your chickens look disgusting. It's like they were hit by a truck. The wedding party had started to line up, except Ian, who had to play. They were going to get this ceremony over with quickly before the storm clouds to the west drifted near and made things worse. The bridesmaids began stepping first, a short trajectory from the canopy to the rose bushes where the I do's would be said. Ian played, here comes the bride. The bridesmaids were in pastels. One, the light peach of baby aspirin. One, the seafoam green of low-dose clonazepam. <laughs> The other, the pale daffodil of the next lowest dose of clonazepam. <laughs> what a good idea to have the look of Big Pharma at your wedding. Why hadn't I thought of that? Why hadn't I thought of that until now? I take thee, dear Maria. They were uttering those promises these promises themselves, just as Ian said they would. Hank said, I do, and Maria said, you do, then vice versa. At least Maria had taken off her sunglasses. Young people, I tried not to say out loud with a sigh. Time went slowly, then stood still, then became undetectable. So who knew how long all this was taking? A loud noise, like mechanized thunder, was coming from the highway. Strangely, it was not a storm. Oh, that's not mine. <laughs> Um, a group of motorcyclists boomed up the road and instead of roaring by us slowed then turned right in at the driveway a dozen of them all on Harleys I didn't really know motorcycles but I knew that every biker from Platteville to Manitowoc owned a Harley that was just a regional fact they switched off their engines none of the riders wore a helmet they wore bandanas except for the leader who wore a football helmet with some blush puppy ears which had been snipped from some child stuffed animal then glued on either side. He took out a handgun and fired it three times into the air. Several guests screamed. I could make no sound at all. 
The biker with the gun and the puppy ears began to shout, I have a firearms license and those were blanks and this is self-defense because our group here has an easement that extends just this far into this driveway. Also, we were abused as children and as adults and moreover, we've been eating a hell of a lot of Twinkies. Also, we, were actu we are actually very peaceful people. We just know that life can get quite startling and it switches of channels, that there is a river and sea figure of speech as well as a TV one, which is why as life moves rudely past, you have to give it room. We understand that. An occasion like this means no more forks in the road. All mistakes are behind you and that means it's no longer really possible to make one, not a big one. You've already done that. I need to speak first here to the bride. He looked around but no one moved. He cleared his throat a bit. The errors a person already made can step forward and announce themselves and then freeze themselves into a charming little sculpture garden that can no longer hurt you, like a cemetery. And like a cemetery, it is the kind of freedom that is the opposite of free. He looked in a puzzled way across the property toward Maria. It's the flickering quantum zone of gun and none, got and not. He shifted uncomfortably, as if the phrase flickering quantum zone had taken a lot out of him. <laughs> as I said, now I need to speak to the bride. Would that be you? Maria shouted at him in Portuguese. Her bridesmaids joined in. What are they saying? I murmured to Nikki. I forgot all my Portuguese, she said. My whole childhood, I only remember Maria saying good job to everything I did. So now I think of that as Portuguese. <laughs> yes, I murmured, so do I. Good job, Nikki shouted belligerently at the biker. Good job being an asshole and interrupting a wedding. Nikki, leave this to the grown-ups, I whispered. But the guests just stood there, paralyzed, except Ian, who seemingly very far off on the horizon slowly stood, placing his guitar on the ground. He then took his white collapsible chair in both hands and raised it over his head. Are you Caitlin? The puppy-eared biker continued to address Maria, and she continued to curse, waving her sprigs of mint and spurea at him. She gave him the finger, and when Hank tried to calm her, she gave Hank the finger. The cyclist turned around with an expression that suggested he believed he might have the wrong country wedding. He took out his cell phone, took off his helmet, pressed someone on speed dial, then turned to speak into it. Yo, Joe. I don't think you gave me the right address. Yeah, no, you don't get it. This ain't Caitlin's place. What? No, listen, what I'm saying is wrong addressee. This ain't it. No speakeasy English here. He slammed his phone shut. He put his helmet back on. But Ian was trotting slowly toward him with the chair over his head, crying the yelping cry of anyone who was trying to be a hero at his ex-wife's wedding. Sorry, people, the biker said. He gave the approaching Ian only a quick, unfazed double take. He flipped one of his puppy ears at him and hurried to straddle his bike. Wrong address, everybody. Then his whole two-stone-to-be-menacing gang started up their engines and rode away in a roar, kicking up dust from the driveway gravel. It was a relief to see them go. Ian continued to run down the road after them, howling, chair overhead, for the motorcycles were quickly out of sight. Should we follow Ian? asked Nikki. 
someone near to us was phoning the police. Let Ian get it out of his system, I said. Yeah, she said, and now made a beeline for Maria. Good job, I could hear Nikki say to Maria. Good job getting married. And then Nikki threw her arms around her former caretaker and began, hunched and heaving, to weep on her shoulder. I couldn't bear to watch. There was a big black zigzag across my heart. I could hear Maria say, Thank you for coming, Nikki. You and your mother are my heroes. Ian had not returned, and no one had gone looking for him. He would be back in time for the rain. There was a rent-a-disc jockey who started to put on some music which blared from the speakers, Michael Jackson again. Every day there was something new to mourn and something old to celebrate. Civilization had learned this long ago and continued to remind us. Was that what the biker had meant? I moved toward the buffet table. You know, when you're hungry, there's nothing better than food, I said to a perfect stranger. <laughs> I cut a small chunk of ham. I placed a deviled egg in my mouth and resisted the temptation to position it in front of my teeth and smile scarily <laughs> the way we had as children. Oh, look at those sad chickens, I said ambiguously and with my mouth full. There were rumors that the wedding cake was still being frosted and that it would take a while. A few people were starting to dance before the dark clouds burst open and ruined everything. Next to the food table was a smaller one displaying a variety of insect repellents, aerosols and creams as if it were the vanity corner of a posh ladies' room except with discreet constellations of gnats. Guests were spraying themselves a little too close to the food and the smells of citronella and imminent rain combined in the air. The biker was right. You had to unfreeze your feet, take blind steps backward, risk a loss of balance, risk an endless fall in order to give life room. Was that what he had said? <laughs> Who knew? People were shaking their bodies now to Michael Jackson's Shake Your Body. I wanted this song played at my funeral. Also, the Doobie Brothers taking it to the streets. <laughs> also, have yourself a merry little Christmas just to fuck with people. I put down my paper plate and plastic wine glass. I looked over at Ian's dad, who was once again brooding off by himself. Come dance with someone your own age, I called to him. And because he did not say, that is so not going to happen, I approached him from across the lawn. As I got closer, I could see that since the days he would sometimes come to our house to pick up Maria and drive her home himself in the silver sports car of the recently single, he had had some eye work done, a lift to remove the puff and bloat. He would rather look startled and insane than look 56. <laughs> I grabbed both his hands and reeled him around. Whoa, he said with something like a smile, and he let go with one hand to raise it over his head and flutter it in a jokey jazz razzmatazz. In sign language, it was the sign for applause. I needed my breath for dancing, so I tried not to laugh. Instead, I fixed my face into a grin, and ah, for a second, the sun came out to light up the side of the red and spinning barn. That's the end. Thank you.
there's a familiar NYU face in the audience here in the front row. Um, I can try to take a few questions if you've already heard this story. You you heard it, I think, when I first the, the very first time I ever read it out loud. Yeah, God. Um, How long did it take to write that story? Um, Fifteen, twenty minutes. <laughs> 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 I don't know. It, it took, you know, it took. I, it takes months and months if you if you count all the drafts and stuff. I don't. I don't really end up knowing how much time it takes. I used to have a computer, and maybe my computer could still do this. I had an old, old one of the original, you know, Mac laptops that um, it didn't even have a modem. But what it did have was something that told you how many hours you had spent on that document. <laughs> and it was always really alarming. To, <laughs> because you would come, you'd open up the document and it would say 1,217 you know, hours. And you would think, wow, that's not even close to minimum wage, you know. It, so, I, but that's, you know, you just keep working on something until, until you feel you're, you're done. And then you, and then you get it off your desk and move on. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a couple months. Have you gotten better at it? No. <laughs> no, that's the weird thing about this job is you don't get better at it. It's not like other jobs where you improve and you be, no, you, in fact, you could get worse. <laughs> when I first started teaching and, and students didn't have, have spell check, you know, I would read a lot of misspelled things. And then I started to misspell things too. So it really was wrecking my writing in a lot of different ways. Um, I would go, disappeared, two S's, one P, yeah, that looks right to me, you know. Um, but you, you realize that it's an, a leap of faith, you know. It's a leap of faith, and it's, you know, it's not a tragedy if it's not, if it's not everything you want it to be. And it won't be everything you want it to be, but it, maybe it'll come close. Maybe. Yeah. Do you ever reread what you wrote like 20 years ago? Oh, I try not to. I really try not to. I, I, some. No. I mean, I mean, I have opened up my first book or my second book and gone like this and then sh shrieked and slammed it shut, you know. I, sometimes I'll see a sentence or something that's, that is, I like. I thought, oh, who wrote that? That's good. And then and there's a sentence right next to it that's just awful. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't. Also, they aren't stories or novels or anything that I would write now. Those, especially those first two books. I would never even write anything like that now. I'm not interested in that. I wouldn't take on those stories as a subject. I just wouldn't. So I'm not even interested as a reader. If someone else had written them, I wouldn't even <laughs> read them. <laughs> as a reader of yours, going back to your first I would, Yeah, and I'll warn you, stay away from the first two books. In the New Yorker, like I recognize your voice. It's like for me, there's a real history to it. That's comforting. Yeah. Oh well, that's I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I think it's good. Because I start. I mean, I the stories in my first book. Some of them I wrote when I was 23, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you how old I am now. 
but it's not 23. Um, but I, I like to think of every story as having its own voice. You know, I'm trying to get, I'm not trying to impose my voice onto s stories or novels. I'm trying to get the, the story to have its voice. Um, but I assume, you know, since I'm the author, that they'll have things in common. But, yeah. Huh? What? <laughs> Where I'm reading the GPS that my drivers, you know, I'm not, I'm actually not reading the GPS. I was no help as the, as the navigator. I just have to let my driver off the hook there because I, you know, she was, she was doing the stick shift and the GPS and, you know, and uh, I was going, oh, I think this, this is Melrose right here. And she said, we don't want Melrose, we want Melbourne or something, or, or vice versa, something. And then I would say, this is West Hollywood, isn't it? And she would say, no, this is not West Hollywood. <laughs> this town is indecipherable to me. It's really, really huge. So I am reading... I know I should give you a more interesting answer. Here's what I do when I travel. I usually take a bunch of old New Yorkers. Um, and, I, and I also take student work, but I tend to read the old New Yorkers first. <laughs> and um, because I think it's perfect airplane reading. And so on the airplanes, because I, sometimes I have to take motion sickness medication so it's not so good. So I can read a short story and then, whoosh, then I'm out falling asleep. Um, but I read uh, a Jonathan Latham story called Pending Vegan. Wasn't that good? Taking place at SeaWorld. And he makes a lot of, I mean, I don't know why he doesn't take the rap for this. He was making a lot of buns and things. SeaWorld, seafood, you know, he was doing all that. Um, but it was an interesting story. There was a story from an old January issue by Antonia Nelson. I'm sure I'm saying her name wrong. Tony Nelson, Antonia Nelson, called First Husband. That was just fantastic. Did anyone read that? Yeah. Didn't you love it? Yeah. It was very good. Um, I read a Tessa Headley story. Am I saying her name right? I'm saying everyone's name is wrong. Oh, well. Um, which was also very interesting. and seemed like a section of a novel, but I don't think it was. Um, and then I read a Malcolm Gladwell piece and, you know, did the nonfiction stuff. Oh, there's a hissing, hissing on Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> Um, and then I read a piece on death certificates and how they are a genre of fiction, apparently. So if, you, if the short stories aren't working out, you can just move directly to death certificates. Um, and um, yeah, that's not very helpful. But when I, I'm not a good traveler, traveler reader, because I, I just, I usually do the, the magazine route. But what are you reading? Oh, that's supposed to be so great. Yeah, that's just supposed Well, I, you know what I read on the plane? I read a review of that book. <laughs> George Packer. George Packer does a kind of roundup review in The New Yorker of all these, um, of fiction and memoirs, are mostly fiction, I think, written by, by vets, not, 
so it, it wouldn't count the um, the Ben Fountain book because he wasn't a vet, but anyone who had actually served and then written fiction. Um, and so it's an interesting article, and he talked about that book a lot. I think that's his favorite of the ones he pulled together. He talked about the Kevin Powers novel and some others. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you start writing a story, how much of the Well, you think, you know, you may have some parameters of time, like you, you, you know, you have, you sort of know your setting, you sort of know how much time is going to elapse, and so, and what sorts of things might happen or could happen, and some feelings and, and scenes that you want to include, but, but they, it can change, it can change, but in general, I have to know a little bit of the contours of it, otherwise I'm too lost. So I, I tend to have a time frame like, like, like all right, with this story, it's going to take place mostly in an afternoon, even though it begins the day before, technically. Um, or in the first story here, it, in this book, it takes place from the beginning of Lent right up to Easter weekend. Um, so I have, so I know roughly where I am that way, and then you just drive it through, you know. Do you, do you know, or you just head out there without, well, head out there blind? Yeah, I think you should. It's good to have an idea of the ending, and I've I've said before that you know I often jump ahead and write the ending, and then so that I have that because the ending is very and then you kind of head toward it. I start I do start with the beginning, then get the ending sort of, and then fill it in, move toward it. But it is a journey. It's a short trip, and when you get in, when you get in your car on a Sunday to take a short trip. It's sometimes good to know a little bit where you might want to go. Otherwise, you might just spin around in a parking lot, you know. <laughs> but it's also it's also fun to get lost, you know. So it's good to have a little bit of both. But if you have a destination or some some little thing that makes you feel safe, so you don't feel like you're headed out into this, you know, horizonless ocean, that's very scary. Um, it, it, it'll be helpful. Now, it all may change by the time you get to the end. You may just change everything. But it's good to have some, at least, makeshift, temporary sense of shape and destination. And then you can change your mind. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, hi. Thank you. This is so lovely. It's so good to see you. After but no one can see you. Years. Do you? <laughs> um, and listen to you read. Um, I was just wondering, because like the other lady, I've been reading you for a long time, and I wondered if over the course of these years, your sort of uh, rituals for writing had changed, um, and yeah, how, how writing felt for you as your life. I'm, I think I'm, I'm much, you know, when I first started writing seriously in graduate school, I'd been working a very, you know, it was it was not a nine to five job. It was like a nine to seven job. It was very, it was 
a lot of hours a week. So I was so grateful to get to graduate school where I could just wake up every morning and read and write. And so I was grateful for writing. But then I got a little used to that. And, um, but I'm still grateful for any time I have. I mean, I think, I, I was about to say I'm more grateful for writing at all when it occurs. You know, I'm more grateful for those chunks of time that, that, um, can make it happen. But I was actually grateful from the beginning for when I had those. But so I don't know. I think I think I do drink more coffee than I used to. But I need to. <laughs> and um, and I don't know. I'm 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 less I'm I might be less afraid of making a mistake, but also um, less, uh, I was talking about this with Chang Ray Lee in Philadelphia, um, because we both were talking about our, our first novels, and we, which were really kind of experimental and kind of nuts. And we, we said, you know, when you don't know what you're doing, you get really ambitious. <laughs> and then we laughed our heads off. <laughs> Even though we'd wasted years writing those books, um, he had actually written part of his novel in Byronic couplets, you know, and he, you know, he he had just put everything he could in it. Um, so there's a way in which you pull back a little bit, you get maybe a little more conservative, but also a little less fearful, if that makes sense. That contradiction. But thank you, thank you. Yeah, we have one more question. What does <laughs> Do they really? They wear trench coats? I have an actual spy, but I didn't even give him a trench coat, I don't think. Isn't that interesting? I, I think of a trench coat as signifying a flasher. <laughs> <laughs> Is there more than one trench coat in that first book? You know, it's interesting you say that because there, there was a playwright who decided to put that first story in self-help, which does have a... Oh yeah, they both have trench coats. The two... <laughs> the, the young woman and the man who meet in trench coats. Yeah, that's how it begins. Um, and she did a kind of choreography of that story. And this was in London, thing, you know, you one always agrees to have these things done in foreign countries, so no one, none of your friends will actually see them. But I, I was sent a little footage of it. I didn't see it. I wasn't there for when it opened. But she put everyone in trench coats, and she had the, all the dancers moving around with their trench coats. I thought. That's really interesting. <laughs> but I didn't think it was in more th than that story, but I don't know. I don't know why I did that. Uh, maybe I was longing for a trench coat, I don't know. I don't think I've ever owned a trench coat. <laughs> Are they back in style? I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah. Um, stealing a little bit from a New Yorker fiction podcast where they were reading one of your stories and talking about it. Then, uh, <coughs> 
but they were saying how you just dive right into your characters. You don't give a lot of backstory. You kind of like hit the ground running with where we are, etc. When you're creating these characters, do they have a backstory in your head? I think you do a beautiful job of filling it in in this like subtle way as your stories continue. But like, do you create little mini bios as you're approaching these? I don't create that much that I don't use, but I do weave in. I mean, there's a lot, for instance, there's a lot of backstory that gets registered in the story Wings, for instance. There's a little bit of backstory in the one that I read, so you got some of that. Um, there's, there's backstory in almost every single story, not a lot. But any, but this, uh, the part of the background of the character that matters to the current story, I will include. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Should we do that? Okay. The word bark has a number of similar meanings. Mm -hmm. Some which have no similarity whatsoever, like embark and things like that. So, what is the overarching message of the title? There is no message. That's why fiction writers write. They have they have no they have a lot of different different messages that kind of contradict each other. They have a lot of questions and then different answers to the same questions. Um, so the bark is just a sort of lovely Anglo-Saxon word that means a lot of interesting different things and it shows up in every single story. Basically, it's an evasive move on my part because I didn't want to have a title story I th because I just think it puts so much pressure on a title story to have that, to have one story be the title of the whole book and I didn't. And so I think I have four collections now and three out of four do not have title stories. And the one that does have a title story, the title story is terrible. It shouldn't have been the title of the book. It's not good. Um, so, um, but I, I'm interested in words and images that recur through the stories. And um, in this one I noticed the word bark in every single one. But you know, you'll probably find the word bark in every single story written by every single writer. <laughs> it's a great word. I mean, English is a great language. It's sort of sprawling and full of other languages and different strands. And that's a nice sort of, you know, Anglo-Saxon thing. You know, from the Germanic tribes that invaded England, you know, whatever. <laughs> bark. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.